Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. My name is Ben Craven and today we're joined by our Executive Director, Dr. Oliver Hartwich. Hi Oliver. Hi Ben. Oliver, your latest New Zealand Herald column is called An Inflation Crisis of the Government's Making. You use a fantastic line in there saying that life has become grotesquely unaffordable for many Kiwis and you go on to warn that in the lead up to the next general election, politicians will come out with all sorts of weird and wacky ideas of how to address that cost of living crisis. But you also say that many of them, if not all of them, uh, will actually make things worse. Can you tell us about what we can expect to see? Well, my starting point in the column is actually just to state the obvious, that as you say, life has become grotesquely unaffordable in New Zealand. And I think we all know examples of that. The most obvious one is, of course, house prices. Uh, They have gone up massively over the last few years. At a time, house price inflation ran at 30%. It's now slowing down a little bit, but housing is still extremely expensive, among the most expensive housing you can find anywhere in the world. So that's one aspect. The other one is we have an official inflation rate at 5.9%. We probably expect this to rise a little bit further. And it is, of course, inflation that's uniform across all sorts of goods and services. But it's inflation that is prevalent, especially in food prices, in fuel costs. So especially in those categories where especially households on lower incomes feel the effect the most because when a household gets more affluent, of course, the proportion that these households spend on things like fuel and food actually goes down. So when you've got food and fuel prices going up, it's the poorest households that are likely to feel it the most. So you're saying there's, there's certain expenses that are pretty common across different income groups. And so... For all of these reasons, I mean, we could add in rents. I mean, for people who can't, haven't even afforded to own their home or take out a mortgage, rather, mm. um, rents have gone up massively. And for all of these reasons, we are now hearing regularly about a cost of living crisis. And I think most people, um, even if they don't read about it, they can feel it on a daily basis. I mean, try to do your weekly shopping and you will be surprised how much you pay at the checkout. It's become quite uh, extreme in some quarters. Now, The scariest words in the English language, according to Ronald Reagan, are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And this is exactly what's happening in this crisis. So when there is a cost of living crisis, politicians are not far away. And politicians, what they do is they try to offer help in in two categories. The first category is, well, we are going to curb some of these prices. And then you've got discussions on price controls, rent controls, maybe splitting up the supermarkets, maybe starting a new government-run supermarket, a Kiwi Mart. These are things we're already starting to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all of these discussions um, have already started. So that's one aspect. The other one is actually um, government might also want to subsidize individual groups of people. So when fuel prices go up, then the government might actually help, for example, when they're doing that in the UK, with um, winter fuel payments to pensioners. So they're trying to help people on the income side. What my piece does is actually to say, well, actually, hang on. The same politicians that are now trying to solve our cost of living crisis, make us all a little bit better off, are the ones to blame for a lot of the things that are now resulting in higher prices. So, for example, fuel taxes are driving up petrol prices. And if you're filling your car, about half of what you pay at the pump is actually tax. So it's kind of a bit absurd politicians now complaining about high fuel prices when... 50% is actually going towards their way. Exactly. So um, I'm just a bit more 
skeptical about government's offers to help and government plans to help cost of living crisis when I actually would blame government for a lot of the prices that we see. So a lot of those government sort of interventions that you've just outlined there, also in your column, uh, they seem like quite simple solutions, whereas actually you go on to say that there are a number of things that the government should be looking to do, that politicians should be looking to propose to change how we do things in New Zealand, and that would have a much better effect on how much people are paying in their day-to-day lives. Can you tell us more about those and what they look like? Yeah, I mean, for starters, uh, we've already talked about the fuel taxes and fuel duties. That is one way in which government could probably actually take some of the pressure off households' budgets. I think actually at the current level where 50% of every dollar of petrol is paid to the government, that's probably a bit excessive. And it's certainly higher than in other countries. I mean, look at Australia. Mm. That's where fuel prices are a bit lower. Much better roads. Yes. And I mean, supposedly what we're paying in our fuel duty is, of course, going towards a fund to build roads. But we know that some of that has been siphoned off. Mm. Um, The other factor, and I think it's a massive factor for the total economy, is land prices. We tend to talk about land prices, of course, when it comes to residential property. What we sometimes forget is that land is a factor in many business activities. So each time you go to the movies, each time you dine out, each time you go and do your shopping, what you're doing in effect is you're paying a part of the price for land. And so land prices really feed through everything because it is an important factor. I mean, once you realize that, for example, a square meter on Lambton Key here in Wellington, the annual rent is about $2,000, including GST. You can see that land prices actually flow um, right through to consumers because it has to be recovered somewhere. And it doesn't have to be that way, especially not in a country as land-rich as New Zealand, where we only use a tiny percentage of our land for development. So I think with limited land supply with restrictive land supply policies, we have pushed up the price of land to levels um, that are unnecessarily high. And unfortunately, we are all paying a price for that. I mean, that's something I see myself in my personal life is um, the difference in getting a haircut in the central city versus out in one of the suburbs. It seems to be a, a vast difference. And a lot of that will be due to how much rent costs in the, in the CBD. Um you go in further in this article, you take aim as well at the Reserve Bank and the so-called dual mandate. Can you tell us what the issue is there and what would need to be done to address it? Yeah, when it comes to potential culprits for cost of living crisis, I think the RBNZ deserves a mention. The problem I have with the RBNZ here is actually that I think they've become a little bit confused. We've talked about this on previous podcast episodes. We used to have a Reserve Bank with a clear mandate. And that clear mandate was all about price stability. One of the first things the government did after the change of government in 2017 was to broaden that mandate and also task the Reserve Bank with working towards full employment. Now, every economist over the last 40, 50 years would have probably come to the same conclusion that you cannot actually play employment against price stability in the long run. In the short one, of course, you can. So you can artificially boost employment with loose monetary policies. In the end, of course, what you will end up with is higher prices and then employment effects will also disappear again. But there's a temptation to stimulate the economy in the short run. And I think we've seen some of that, and especially in COVID times, when the Reserve Bank has typically erred on the side of uh, stimulus spending and it has, I think, overshot on this target. 
And therefore, I think the Reserve Bank is partially to blame for the high level of inflation that we observe now. But ultimately, of course, it is the government's responsibility because it was the government giving the Reserve Bank that dual mandate. So I think um, that mandate has to go, has to revert to what it once was, and it is a clear focus on just price stability and nothing else. Later on in your column, uh, there's a fantastic paragraph, and it's, it's a bit of a history lesson. It says, once upon a time, New Zealand had the highest economic output per person in the world, much higher than in, say, the UK, Australia, or the US. What happened? Oh, I think on that one you're better off to ask Bryce Wilkinson because he's almost the um, living encyclopedia of New Zealand economic policy and economic history. Many things happened, but my point here is actually something slightly different. I just wanted to point out that, yes, um, we have we observe rising prices globally. This is not just a New Zealand phenomenon. I mean, especially when it comes to things like the microchip shortage, that is definitely affecting every country around the world when it comes to logistics disruptions. I mean, they affect everyone too. And then, of course, fuel prices, um, high and rising oil prices, every country in the world is affected by that. What I'm saying is, when you are in a high-income country, you are better equipped to deal with them. And for this column, I actually did a bit of a comparison. There are wonderful websites out there comparing cost of living in countries around the world. And I just wanted to get a feel for the differences between especially Australia and New Zealand again. And to my great surprise, actually, when it came to just comparing cost of living expenses, there wasn't much between Auckland and Sydney these days. I mean, of course, some categories in each country are more expensive, some other categories are cheaper, but by and large, the cost of living for people in Auckland and for Sydney side is roughly the same. The big difference was household income. So net household income, that's after tax, was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was a bit more than $2,000 more in Sydney, New Zealand dollars per month. Um, and therefore, of course, it is a bit easier to deal with all of these international factors pushing up inflation when you're sitting on this high income. And the other thing is, of course, we are dealing with a lot of products that we source from other countries, especially from Southeast Asian countries when it comes to electronics, for example. Well, the new Samsung S22, I just looked it up out of curiosity, it basically sells for the same price no matter where you pre-order it, whether you're pre-ordering it in Switzerland or in in Germany, in the UK, in the US, in Australia, New Zealand, it's basically the same price. Yeah, global price, right? Yeah, yeah, but the difference is that Australians have to work about 20% less for this phone because their household incomes are so much higher than in New Zealand. So in the end, we can afford a lot less than our friends in Australia because they have a higher productivity level. And I just wanted to point out, when we talk about the cost of living crisis, we should also put it in the context of our long-standing productivity issues. I mean, intellectually speaking, there are two separate problems, of course. I know that. Mm. But when you put yourself in a position of a household and you are struggling to make ends meet, basically it is a question of, well, we've got rising prices and we've got not so great and not so flash incomes. And then it's almost futile to debate. Um, so which side of the debate actually cuts it? It's a bit like arguing which um, blade of a pair of scissors cuts the paper. Well, of course, it's both. And for households, I think um, they are suffering from, A, rising prices for all sorts of factors, some of them having to do with government regulation, but B, they're also suffering because we simply haven't seen our, our household incomes develop as much as in other parts of the world, most notably Australia. Yeah, just coming back to that, I've got the numbers here, staggering difference really. So the average household 
uh, monthly net income in Auckland is $4,409, but in Sydney it's almost a third higher at $6,456. And in San Francisco, I think it was... Almost $12,000. Yeah, almost $12,000. Stratospheric in comparison. Right, with borders eventually looking to open um, and Kiwis being able to travel sometime hopefully later this year, can we expect there to be a, a bit of an exodus of bright young New Zealanders over to Australia given given their statistics? Yes, I think we can. And, uh, that would only be the resumption, of course, of a long-standing trend that was interrupted in the last few years because of COVID. And before that, actually, for a while, we had almost a balanced migration record with Australia That was at a time when New Zealand uh, grew faster than Australia. But the story of the last few years is, of course, that New Zealand's going backwards and that Australia is looking more and more attractive because of, in some cases, lower prices. I mean, fuel is a lot cheaper in Australia these days, and that's certainly contributing to the cost of living pressures here. And, of course, Australian wages, salaries are still quite a lot higher than in New Zealand on average, about 20-25%. So, of course, um, if you put the two together, you have probably lower costs of living in Australia, depending on where you go, of course. And um, you will probably also earn a bit more. That is tempting. Absolutely. Dr. Oliver Hartwich, thanks so much for joining us and explaining what is behind the high prices New Zealanders are paying. You can check out Oliver's column on the New Zealand Herald titled An Inflation Crisis of the Government's Making. Oliver, thank you. Thanks, man. stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.